welcome to the Spin Up Science podcast, where we explore the interface of science and startups and share the journeys of scientists turning their discoveries into companies. Today's episode is recorded live from an interview at one of our Spin Up Society events. If you'd like to join us at a future live event, you can sign up on our website. But let's get straight into it. Today, we have with us a longtime friend of Spin Up Science. <laughs> Dr. Sofia Ferreira-Gonzalez, who, as a little bit of background on Sofia, uh, did her PhD and her postdoc at the Center for Regenerative Medicine at the University of Edinburgh. Her research focuses on uh, probing the molecular mechanisms for regenerating cellular senescence uh, and the general impact uh, of uh, senescence on homeostasis as well as disease. Sophia, as of uh, September 2021, is also now the CEO and co-founder of Sensibile, a company that is producing a non-invasive biomedical device aiming to revolutionize liver organ transplantation. So yeah, essentially that was me. Thank you very much for the introduction, Ben. I have to say I my background, I, I originally come from Spain where I did my undergrad in biomedical sciences, something completely, completely unrelated to what I'm doing right now. And then I had the opportunity to join very briefly the industry and at the time I was doing bioreactors, which again has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm doing right now. And then I had the opportunity to join one of the leader groups in liver disease in the world here in Edinburgh at the University of Edinburgh. And I started my PhD here because I was particularly interested into liver disease and what can we do to prevent it and what can we do to to treat it specifically. And uh, we came out with this idea a couple of years ago of trying to improve the outcomes after liver transplantation. And I'm going to give you an overview of why liver transplantation, because when people think about disease, they're probably thinking about, you know, cardiac disease, lung disease, COVID in these times, but they don't realize that liver disease has a huge, huge impact in the population nowadays. And that's what we're trying to tackle. So I'm going to show you Sensibile and what are we trying to do with this? So as a background, I would just like to show you that every day, more than 40 people die in the UK from liver disease. And this has increased very steadily over the last decades. And you can see that in in comparison with other diseases like diabetes or cancer, where in the early 70s, they started with these heavily advertisement campaigns to prevent these diseases. This doesn't happen in liver. And as a consequence, we see that this has increased over 400%. Uh, with the death rates in, in the last years. And this, of course, has to do with alcohol, but people do not realize that most of the cases have to do with a very, very poor dietary habits, which are very common, unfortunately, in, in the countries where we live. And um, the consequence of this is that people do not think as liver disease as a progressive disease. And the reality is that the damage will accumulate over the course of the years up to the point where there is no therapeutic options. These patients will have no other options that a liver transplantation. And of course, don't get me wrong, this is a life-saving procedure. It's absolutely fantastic. But uh, we can't really, this, the transplant surgeons, they do have no way to address how good a liver looks like prior to transplantation. So they essentially fly in solo before the transplant. And the main problem is that you may be thinking about rejection or something similar, but the reality is that up to 30% of the transplanted liver patients end up developing biliary complications. And the problem is that in the biliary complications, all the structure of the biliary tract within the liver is destroyed. And when that happens, the entire graft goes to the bin and these patients need 
a second transplant. So this is the biliary tract within the liver. You're probably not very familiarized, but uh, in the lab, we explore in detail all the relationships in between the different cells in homeostasis and indices. And we particularly focus in these green areas, green pipes here, that are essentially the, the pipes, the group of pipes that gets all the bile produced by the liver and delivers into your duodenum to help you with the absorption of nutrients. And again, the problem is that when you do this liver transplantation and the patients end up developing liver, uh, biliary complications, the transplant surgeons have to repeat everything again. So essentially it's, it's a nightmare for them. They, they need to repeat everything for a change of living. And there's nothing at the moment that allowed these transplant surgeons all over the world to define what is the quality of the liver before transplantation? What is the likeliness? What is the risk of a certain donor liver to develop biliary complications after the transplant? And again, just to give a little bit more of, of, of the scenario for this, one transplant costs approximately 60K in the UK. It can cost more than 700K in USA per transplant. And you have to take into account that in the worst case scenario, these patients will undergo through two transplants. And obviously that increases the post-operative cost in more, than, in more than 54%. And it doubles the length of the stay in the hospital. So it's no good for the, for the patients, obviously, but it's no good for the transplant. It's no good for the healthcare system overall. And with this idea in mind, you know that there's a clear problem here. We decided to, to, we had this very crazy idea and we said that our surgeons, we had, uh, we actually had a PhD student in our lab who comes from a clinical background. She is an amazing transplant surgeon who came from Innsbruck, one of the main centers in Europe transplanting livers. And we had the opportunity to talk to her and through her and the different team here in Edinburgh and in Innsbruck as well, we got the opportunity to get our hands in liver samples and in bile samples of livers, everything prior to transplantation. So the idea was to compare prior to transplantation during the procedure of the procurement of all the organs, the bile from livers that later underwent a very successful transplant or those livers that later developed biliary complications. And with this, we went back to the lab and we did an entire protein profile to define this biosignature that you can see here on the right. So these are hits, these are protein markers that are exclusive expressed, exclusively present in those livers that later develop biliary complications. So we now have a way to define what makes a liver more prone to develop biliary complications after the transplant. We can detect this biosignature before doing anything else. So essentially what we want to do with this and uh, following the path of several other biomarkers that we have used in the lab and in collaboration with the biosensor experts at the university, we want to use this biosignature to develop something like you can see here in the middle. This is an electric impedance system. In each of these different dots, essentially what we put is one of the markers. We won't use all these markers. We will only use the relevant ones from a biological point of view. And essentially this is connected later to a microfluidic system and, and, and potential step that you can see here on the right, this black thing here. And essentially that allows us to identify the presence or the absence of these particular markers in the samples of bile. And the idea of this is to be able to, again, detect these markers prior to transplantation and be able to tell the transplant surgeon, this liver has a very high probability of biliary complications or a low probability of developing problems later. And with this in mind, we essentially want to provide 
information, informed decision for the surgeons to be able to decide what to do with that liver later, either completely stop and not transplant the liver because it's not worth it and it's going to give you more troubles after transplantation, or maybe implement early therapies in case that you need to transplant the liver no matter what, but you can still monitor the patient very closely before any trouble arises because that's normally when you can't do anything at all. That's way too late for to, to do any therapeutic interventions. So that was a uh, really kind of in-depth run through of how you came up with the idea and where it's kind of going. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about where you are at the moment, trying to kind of work out how best to take it into the marketplace, whether it's spin-out companies, whether it's licensing opportunities, kind of what, what are you thinking at the moment? So we have had the opportunity and partially was thanks to the spin-out course as well and through the IQ process, we had the opportunity to explore the marketing, to, to take a, an overview, a good look of how the market looks like. Uh, where will it be more convenient to deploy whatever we're planning to do? And especially our idea was to engage with the customers to understand essentially what were their needs and how to move this forward. So at the moment, we're still building our prototype. We are still rooted into an academic background. So we're trying to explore other ideas on the diversification options for this, for this particular project, but we are trying to actively seek funding to, to, to build our prototype. At what kind of point did you realize that you maybe had something that had some kind of commercial potential? Like when when was that kind of spark moment, if you do remember it? You know, I actually had the opportunity to go and check with our transplant surgeon in the lab to go and check uh, a liver transplant, an entire liver transplant, and I didn't faint, I have to say. <laughs> so I was there in the middle of the of the rush. And these are very dynamic people, you know, they're very focused. They are they're, they're absolutely incredible people. And, and then you realize that they basically, they're flying solo. They have nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing to define what is the quality of the liver? They have been essentially performing the same type of procedure for transplant, for liver transplant since the last 30 years. So we identified a, a problem here for them. And by being able to articulate the ideas, to speak to them, to receive their input, you know, we realized that there was really a blank area to explore in here. And then we realized, okay, but I mean, there's a point in which you work from academia, you know, and basically we publish the papers, we publish our results, and that's everything we do. And then we forget about the stories. And they realize, okay, this is not going to help them. This is not going to ultimately, you know, help them, help the surgeons, help the patients. We need to somehow move this forward. And that's when the entire process of the commercialization and building the prototype it started to work. We just realized that we had the opportunity here, you know, that it was pointless for us to publish something for anyone else with no expertise in the field, with not this experience to be able to explore that, we decided just to go ahead and explore it ourselves. And that's when, when we started with all, with, all this, with all this process. Because I have to say that I don't come from a, from a commercial background, I come from a purely academic background. So it's a completely different feel. It has taken a good leap of faith at this point. But yeah, that's, that's essentially when we realize, you know, it's, there's a problem, somebody needs the help, who better than us to drive this? How have you found kind of mapping um, kind of the academic, the researcher headspace onto thinking about it as kind of a commercial opportunity? What, what works really well? What doesn't work at all? 
I have to say that I have received huge amounts of help from the University of Edinburgh. They have a good entrepreneurial tissue. I mean, this is not Palo Alto, don't get me wrong. This is not California, you know. So I think that UK in that sense is still a little bit behind any other entrepreneurial areas. But still, with that idiosyncrasy, we, we receive massive amounts of help from the university. And that helps us to, you know, pinpoint what is the regulatory pathways, what do we need to think about uh, from the point of view of IP, from the point of view of reimbursement. So areas that I normally don't focus at all and I don't think about, and, and then you realize you just focus into it is like, okay, I need this, this and that. And I don't have the background, I don't have the expertise to be able to provide this. So having the opportunity you know, to work very closely with the business advisors and the TTOs and everything at the university, it made a huge, huge difference for us to start with. How have you found just the general upskilling into all of those different pieces? Do you feel like you are they're starting to kind of come into the remit of things that you think about? It's slow. I have to say that, you know, I, I thought that everything was going to be a little bit faster from a commercial point of view, and it's still as slow as it can be in academia. It's it's challenging. And again, I'm not particularly sure if this is because I like the expertise. This is my first entrepreneurial activity, so I'm fairly new to this. Or, or because, again, the idiosyncrasies of this particular project where we have to engage, you know, with multiple segments here and there and to think about different areas on how to commercialize this makes things particularly difficult in this sense. I'm not sure if it's easier, you know, if you go to the industry in other fields, but particularly for biomedical uh, studies when you have to take into account, you know, clinical trials and patients and that you have to go through all this process and there is no cutoffs it complicates things a little bit. So yeah, overall, it's low. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about kind of where you are at the moment in the process? So that, I mean, the company has been incorporated, but kind of what are the motions that you're going through? So because in UK, specifically the ethics doesn't allow us to do everything that we would like to do, you know, because these at the end of the day are patient samples. And the, the story here is a little bit more complicated because in Innsbruck, for example, the ethics are slightly different, but in UK, and this applies as well to the USA, the, the bile belongs, it, although it goes, to, the bile that we use for, for all these processes, although it goes to the bean, is still considered to be part of the patient, part of the donor, part of the family that takes the decisions of what to do with that liver. So it complicates a little bit what to do next in terms of from, from, from an ethical point of view. So essentially we need to acquire ethical approvals and go through all this process for absolutely everything. And it will eventually require us to go through a single phase one, through a single arm phase one clinical trial to test the effectiveness of whatever we produce in the lab. So it's not as straightforward as I would like to because we have to go through all these processes, you know, all these uh, committees, all these regulatory uh, fields, and it doesn't make things fast again, but it's, it's a necessary step. So that's what we're doing at the moment. We are trying to, to understand from a regulatory point of view that what do we need here? What do we need in other countries where we need to implement our device as well? And again, engaging with everyone in the process. And what's your, your kind of view as to um, which bits of this process are best done through further academic research or which bits of the process are best done by turning it into a company and having that company kind of engage in regulatory processes, clinical trials, all of those sorts of things? 
to be completely honest, and given that, given that we're doing everything from the university within the university, I think that both the commercial and the academic point of view here are completely intermingled. Because at the end of the day, you know, we need to prove that what we have works and we need to have an academic background for that. We need an academic route for that. And at the same time, we need to bring in place, we need to put at the table or the commercial bits that we need moving forward to provide these, our device to the next steps. So I would say that I, I can't really separate one or the other. We probably at this stage working on both. So the, the idea would be have your spin out entities starting to build some kind of commercial frameworks and, and infrastructures and things, but a lot of the work will still be done within the academic lab, within the academic group. Is that right? Exactly. And especially because we want to understand if we can expand this, if we can get access to other to other, to other tissues, like, for example, blood and analyze our biosignature in blood. If we can address the same biosignature for other biliary diseases, which are specific of the biliary tract and not related to transplantation, we want to understand one of the main epidemics in liver disease is non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, essentially fatty liver disease. And we want to understand as well if we can use a biosignature for that with our device to be able to predict when do you start uh, showing symptoms of, of fatty liver disease and start implementing very early therapeutics before you go into you know, all the problems of having advanced liver disease. Mm. So for that, we definitely need, and it makes it easier from, from being rooted within the academia to access all the regulatory, all the ethical bodies, it makes things much easier to be within the university rather than if you're completely alone. Cool. So there's a nice kind of complementarity to like doing it as a dual track almost. Uh, that, that's interesting. How can I ask you, have you ever kind of, did you ever view yourself as moving into the CEO role? Was that something that you had always, always been kind of percolating in the back of your mind that you might want to try something entrepreneurial? Definitely. And to be completely honest, I don't see it that far away from being a, um, from being a researcher here in the lab. At the end of the day, I think that, you know, the PhD, it gives you focus into one particular field, but it basically opens you to the opportunity to answer questions and to save your ass from basically everything. You know, you, you basically there, you have a ton of things to do. You have no idea how to do it. And then you suddenly realize that, you know, you can't do it and you have to implement some ways to do it. And in that sense, I believe that, you know, the commercial experience and the researcher experience are not much different. It's basically finding ways to move things forward. So, I mean, in that sense, I wouldn't mind definitely being, being the CEO of the company and I can foresee, you know, how to continue exploring my academic interests within a company if we, if we aim to grow within the next years. So, yeah. How did you, um, what, what were your kind of first steps, I guess, when you started to realized that there was something com commercially interesting here um like how how did you go about assembling momentum i guess like how did you how did you actually start things happening that's that's a very interesting question um two years ago you know we only had this idea and we saw the first opportunity to get some money to fund the first proteomic analysis to analyze this biosignature to get the samples etc cetera, etc cetera. but we didn't know exactly where to start 
So with this idea in mind, I basically went to apply for this particular competition. It was an internal competition at the University of Edinburgh at that time. And I thought, okay, this is just a silly idea. You know, this is never going to happen. I was pregnant with my second child by that time. So I thought, okay, the time is might not be the best, but come on, this is going to never happen, you know, so let's go for it. Let's see, it's good training in any case. You, you learn how to articulate your ideas and everything. And basically, like a couple of days after giving birth and with the baby on my arms, I just received the call saying, OK, look, we selected you for this. You have to present now within 15 days. You have to come here to this audience, you know, and pitch your talk. And I just look at my baby. It's like, well, OK, you know, things happen. Life happens. Maybe it wasn't a bad idea after all. So I just went and pitched the idea. And I actually won the competition. And, you know, from this silly idea, kind of everything is snowballed. So that opportunity opened the opportunity to get some preliminary data and access a different course, access different funding, get more data, get more samples. So everything kind of is snowballed from there, you know? I mean, not that I was just, it, it was not like being driven by the momentum, but mostly, you know, you driven yourself the momentum because if you don't jump at the chance, if you don't take the opportunity, the opportunity yeah. will pass by. But yeah, everything kind of from one little chance of something that we thought was a very silly idea, suddenly we find ourselves, you know, with this, which is a real necessity for the surgeons out there. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, um, maybe not the entrepreneurial journey that all people can relate to, but I think comes back to the fact that just innovation is is a bit chaotic in its nature. So it's very much just make, make something from nothing. And the, I like the point that you brought up, like you really are the momentum driver. Like that becomes your role in all of these sorts of things. How did you find kind of balancing, maintaining some, you know, the, the, like the academic direction, the academic research and balancing it against trying to explore on a commercial side, the possibility of these things? I mean, don't get me wrong. We specialize in liver disease and specifically in biliary disease. So at the end of the day, what we're doing from a research point of view is exploring the biological pathways that we later want to at some point implement into the clinic and we have a good experience in bringing some therapeutics into the clinic it's completely different from the approach that you would take for a, a commercial device like what we're trying to do out here and uh, the kind of support that you receive from the university from the mhra from from the different bodies here in uk if you're planning to move something for for a clinical therapy is completely different so you get much more support. We are a really consolidated group, you know, with a, with a big wig on top in the building. So in that sense, we have good experience on how to move things to the clinic. Said that, you know, moving, moving a device, this is completely different from us. But again, it's not, it's not radically different from what we do. And again, what we want to do in the lab is explore the tiny details, the biological pathways, and eventually what we want to do is to help the patients out there. So yeah, everything goes like very naturally from here to the bench to the bedside in the hospital. Amazing. So, uh, I mean, just to dig in a little bit to the kind of technology a bit more, so where, where is it in its development kind of stages? Like what about it works? What about it still needs kind of further refinement? So initially, and this is part of our journey as well, uh, we envision something very similar to a lateral flow test to whatever you will do, you know, to, to see if you have been infected with COVID, with, with COVID-19. Uh, so we, we initially envisioned something very similar to that. And then we went through our business, you know, we started speaking to the people at the hospitals in, in all the areas in the world. 
And we just realized that our idea was absolutely rubbish because they didn't like it. The perceived quality of the lateral flow test, and especially after this pandemic, was very, very low. And uh, they didn't like the idea of only relying, putting all the eggs in the same basket and relying only in one marker, which is actually what you can do with a lateral flow test. So we have to redesign everything. So it's like taking, it looks like taking a step backward, but the reality is that being able to identify that problem before you develop something very, very final has made, has made a huge difference because we don't need to redefine everything, you know, at the end of the project. So said that we are not back to square zero, but we are a little bit behind where we would like to be. But again, with the idea that what we will produce here will be a final thing, or will be the final, final product to go into the market. So in that sense, we would probably be, again, around a TRL of around four. We have the validated antibodies. We have a validated biosignature, but we need to redefine which markets will go into. It's absolutely a process. How did you, I, I mean, I, I, I think this question comes up quite a lot. So if I, I will preempt asking it so that I get credit for asking it. Uh, but how did you go about kind of recruiting support around you to actually help you with this process? Like, what, what did that exactly look like? Who did you lean on where did you find those people because that's often kind of one of the bits that i think is makes the uphill battle feel much harder than it otherwise maybe is oftentimes you're doing it alone so how did you find those people to support you it, it takes a village at the end of the day you know this is about teamwork and i wouldn't be able to do this by myself because again i have no idea on how the hospitals operate and it, this will have been completely impossible without speaking to the surgeons and we were very lucky in that sense because we have a transplant surgeon in our team already in the lab doing a PhD and again she's absolutely amazing we had the opportunity to speak in detail about what they do and what their needs are and again my PI my boss at the university he is rooted within the hospital as well so he still practices within the clinical scenario so in that sense that opened up the opportunity to speak with the surgeons, with all the people, you know, in the hospital, with all the insurance companies to regulatory funding bodies, everything. And um, the first step was actually through this PhD student. Uh, she, she came from Innsbruck and she put me in contact very, very, she's, you know, she's very fast. She likes to do things like super proactive, super fast. And she put me in contact with the people in Innsbruck and they thought that that was a good idea, you know, and they, in a very fast pace, they they engage with everything to be able to build the ethics approval and send the first samples. And that's how everything has started. And from then, we have been able to, to do exactly the same with all the groups, including Italy, for example. We in the process of doing exactly the same here in UK. And, and, and again, I mean, it, it, takes, it takes a village, but it started from a very small point, from a very good connection, you know, with, with, deeply with a deep understand of what happens into their clinical practice and in the transplant setting and everything kind of is snowballed from there and again because the University of Edinburgh is particularly interested in promoting any commercial activities within the university we had the opportunity to get uh, the advice from a business from a commercial champion uh, from the TTO as well so we have an entire team back there thinking about you know the commercial opportunities and the IP and how to move this forward from a point of view that we don't normally consider from an academic background. Amazing. Uh, I, I mean, I guess kind of the takeaway from, or what, what would be the takeaway from your kind of experience, how you go about growing that network? Like what are people's kind of general responses when you come to them 
propositioning a new, you know, hope interesting idea to them? Uh, and how do you go about kind of bringing them on side and getting them hopefully to do a bit of work on your behalf? I talk a lot. That's probably, you know, not that bad in, in this case, in this scenario. It, it's a process of growing as well, because the first time that I pitched the idea, the first time that I tried to articulate what we were trying to do, what, what, what was the scenario, you know, it's completely different from what I can do right now. So it takes an entire process. And to be completely honest, most of the time, when you listen to people, when you realize the problems that they have, they are, they, they are superb. They always try to help, you know, and especially since you say, you know, that at the end of the day, this is putting more work in people that is already very, very busy, transplanting livers, helping human beings out there. But still, you know, it has been, the, the response has been absolutely amazing. Everyone is really willing to collaborate. And I think that, you know, this is because they realize that at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is to help the patients, to help them as well. And why not, you know, because at the end of the day, it, we may be the next big thing out there. So if you can be part of that, that's that's very exciting as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, get, I guess kind of tangentially related to those uh, points, like how do you see your role within this activity kind of progressing and, and changing um, Yeah, as things, as things go forward? So I'm, I'm a little bit the girl for everything right now. Again, with all the massive support from all the collaborators, from my PhD student, from, from all the commercial team within the university. And at the moment, basically, what we're trying to do is get more funding, especially from an academic point of view, to explore these diversification options that I was mentioning before. So I'm basically the one dealing with that. And at the same time, you know, at this point, I see myself as well as the CEO of the company, mostly because I don't want to let go, you know, at this point, I become very, very emotionally invested into this story. But yeah, we still need to define how the next opportunities in the future will, will show and, and, and then take decisions. But at the moment, I see myself driving this. Driving the business side forward, is that, was that right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. What, what do you think the next steps are in terms of like the business side? Like, are you talking to investors and trying to raise investment at the moment? Exactly. So there's two different things. Our regulatory pathway is a little bit complicated because we focus into two very different um, areas. So one is the UK with its regulations and everything. And the other one is the USA where the regulatory and the reimbursement pathways are completely different to what we used in here. So that complicates slightly the, the panorama, you know, the scenario. So essentially the first thing is to engage with people that is able to drive us through that entire process. For example, here in UK, that's driven through the Catapult UK medical devices, who essentially on your behalf will put interesting projects forward for MHRA approval. And once that you have that, you can test the efficiency, you can test the efficacy, you can test the sensitivity of whatever you built at point of care, so directly into the hospital. So that's going to be your first step. Of course, you know, from an academic point of view, we would like to include more samples. We would like to include minority groups. We would like to do plenty of different things. But thinking from a commercial point of view, once that we have settled the, um, the regulatory pathways, obviously the IP will go after that. We have already engaged with the university to produce a patent from these. We haven't still go through the entire process because you know that once that you patent, the clock starts ticking. So we're trying to wait as much as possible for that. And at the same time, we're trying to engage 
again, from a commercial point of view, to bring early VCs into this story to be able to make sure that we move towards the next steps. Well, and how, how have you found kind of the um, reaction, I guess, from those early stage investors? Like what are the probing questions that they are asking? It has been very, very interesting, I have to say. You know, we come from academia. We, we, we're very used to, to very technical questions to grinding you, you know, to the bottom, just to see exactly what are you doing and how can you improve it? And then suddenly you realize that they don't care at all about the techniques. They don't care at all about how do you do it? What is the, what is the background of the model? What, how are you planning to do it? They just don't care about that. They care about, you know, what is the impact that you're gonna make? Who are you? And I have the impression that most of the time they care most about you and your potential rather than the device itself. That's that's my general impression. So it's, again, very, very different from academia. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Um, so, I, I mean, I mean, in, the, in terms of timelines, what, what do you think the ne next 18 months hold and, and what is the what are the kind of major challenges that you think are coming your way? So we're definitely spinning out within the next 12 to 18 months. So, again, pending that we have the IP in place, we have explored several licensing opportunities, which may be a side option, but initially is not what we want to do. We want to be able to spin out. So again, these will entail, you know, get, getting the right funding, getting the right people on board and, and moving forward. And it's primarily going to be the UK and secondarily be the USA, even though the numbers are slightly bigger in the USA, purely because the idiosyncrasy and where we're based makes things easier if we start here in UK and then develop what we have in the model in the USA. What um, what was it that pushed you more towards spin-out rather than licensing as a preferred route? Uh, mostly, again, because I can't let go at this <laughs> point. This is like my baby. And, you know, it's. I still think that this is a very interesting project that has many different options, that has many potential options as well for, for exploring, you know, from an academic point of view, different things. And especially because I'm, I come from a very translational background, you know, I want to be able to provide the people out there with some solutions, not something that remains just in the academic realm where it has no life, real life applications. So in that sense, you know, I, I want to be the person driving it. I want to be, I don't want to be just a part of it or just dropping the entire thing and dropping the ball to the next one. No, I want to be the one driving this entire story. Great. Yeah, you want to see it kind of go to the natural conclusion of where the research actually can provide ultimate benefit. What I usually ask, Sophia, is what, uh, up until this point, um, have the main kind of challenges been for you? Like what are the bit, bits that really have kept you up at night? And what would your advice be to the next generation of people looking to kind of follow in your footsteps, get their own ideas up and off the ground? Okay, I'm, I'm going to be completely honest, you know, from a technical point of view, that's not really keeping me up at night, because you find one way or another to fix things. At the beginning of the process, and again, it has been an entire journey, the thing that mainly kept, up, kept myself up at night was thinking that people was investing and they were investing a good amount of money into the project. And this was high risk. We didn't know if this was going to work. We didn't know if we were even going to be able to analyze the bio samples. We had no idea if we could progress with this. And you know, somebody very wise, it just, just told me everything is high risk and you just take the opportunity. And these people know that it's high risk and they 
there's nothing that came out of this, still you will have gained insight and ideas on how to do things, and you will get significant piece of data that somebody else maybe find useful for the future. So it's risky, and everyone knows that it's risky, but still, you know, it gives me thinking, what happens if I don't find anything? What happens if I don't manage to move this towards the clinic? What happens if at some point, and that's life as well. But it took me a while to, to go through that feeling, you know, it's probably as well part of imposter syndrome and, and realizing, you know, that you can overcome that and, and that you need to go there and, and fight for what you believe and you want to do. What was, uh, what was kind of the key piece of advice you would give then to like how to, how to embolden people in, into action? Like what, what, what do they need to keep in the back of their minds? I mean, again, and I thought from the very beginning that this was a completely worthless idea. And the reality is that you never know. I would say you, you need to speak to people. You need to get out there and you need to be able to, you know, to express what you're planning to do, what your idea is. And maybe you have the best idea in the world, but then you go and talk to the people and you realize that somebody is using something different and it doesn't really, you know, work at all. So you definitely need to... You, you need to talk to people. I, I would say that that's, that's my main advice. You need to go out there, talk to the relevant people and see if this is really useful or not. And then just surround yourself with people that truly believe in your project as well. If you get people that don't believe in what you're doing, that's going to be a, a, a handbag, you know? So, yeah, um, because again, I have no idea, you know, from... I have no idea from regulations at the beginning of this process, I have no idea how to move things towards a clinical trial. And then you start talking to people and they may not be the, the best ones to describe your dad, but they may point to another person and then that person may point to, and then the avenues open, the opportunities open and you find yourself with with the path. So yeah, I would say talk, talk a lot, but I'm very Spanish again, so <laughs> it may not be for everyone. There are exciting times ahead for Sophia and the rest of her team as they embark on the next step in their journey of taking their device through clinical trials to transform the transplantation landscape. We wish them absolutely every success. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Dr. Sophia Ferreira Gonzalez, CEO of Sensibile. I'm Dr. Ben Miles, and you've been listening to the Spin Up Science Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>